Welcome to Coog's Talk Stock from WSU Extension, a science-based podcast about animal agriculture for those that raise food animals, those that are interested in learning how, and those that want to learn more about where their food comes from. Find us online at soundcloud.com forward slash Coog's Talk Stock. Hello, I'm Sarah Dreger, a first-year graduate student here at Washington State, pursuing a master's degree in ruminant nutrition with the hopes of helping Washington cattlemen most effectively manage their cattle. I would like to introduce my guest today, Dr. Steve Franson, a forage agronomist and extension specialist at WSU with 37 years' experience in the industry. Hello, Sarah. It's great to be with you today. Hi, Steve. Thank you for coming. Today, we will be talking about the benefits and challenges of managing pastures and rangeland with grazing, specifically in the Pacific Northwest. Without wasting any time, let's get into it. Can you please compare cropland to rangeland and pastures and how land use relates to the relationship of the farm size? Yes, it's a very important topic. Uh, Croplands are primarily to grow grain crops in the PNW. Uh, We also could grow vegetables and other horticultural crops. These are usually directly consumed by humans in our human food system. Uh, While as pastures and rangelands, we use them uh, by raising cattle. Uh, Cattle, dairy, beef, goats, horses, alpacas, llamas, buffalo, emu, and all other kinds of animals that eat pasture and grasses in particular. Because of their lower productivity, they're, they're very different than the croplands, either on an economic level or even on a, a tonnage production level. The latest USDA statistics from 2017 show that cropland and pasture lands are very similar at about 44 and 45% respectively. However, There's a big shift that has changed over the last 30 years with really things moving in opposite directions. Croplands have increased while pasture and rangeland have decreased. Mid-sized farms of croplands are classified between 100 and 1,000 acres, and they decreased from 57% to 33% from that 1987 to 2017 time period. At the same time, the large uh, cropland farms, those over 2,000 acres, increased from 15 to 41 percent. So you can see a huge change in the croplands and what happened. Now let's compare that to our pasture and rangelands, which are required to raise our livestock. Because of the lower productivity, usually these ranches are larger in size than croplands. And a large ranch we would consider to be about 10,000 acres plus. Well, those large ranches have decreased from 1987, where they were 51%, down to 43% in 2017. Ranches or ranchettes, which would be 500 acres or less, have actually increased from 1987 to 2017, suggesting we've gotten a lot more ranchettes and a lot fewer of the large ranches in the past 30 years. 
Looking at the beef cow-calf numbers, they've been pretty stable, if not slightly increasing over the last 30 years, while feedlot and dairies have dramatically increased. USDA calls this consolidation, and we've seen a high amount of consolidation in cropland and uh, in the dairy and in the feedlot operations, while as the pasture and rangelands have really weakened over this same last 30-year period. So many large operations where profit per acre is less than cropland are transitioning to smaller operations. An important concept that should not be lost in this conversation is that pasture and rangelands are not capable, usually, of producing grain crops. Hence, the grain crops are grown on cropland. But croplands that could be used to grow pasture and rangelands for animals uh, is usually not very cost-effective. We need to remember that pasture and rangelands are not wasteland, but they provide many ecosystem services for human food and millions of wildlife species. Both cropland and rangelands serve very different purposes. Both are very important. No wasted land is a great point, Steve. Can you dive deeper into the differences of land productivity for us? Yes, I can. About 30% of the lands are classified as rangeland and pasture with about 770 million acres in the United States, of which about two-thirds of this is actually privately owned. Worldwide, rangelands cover about 40% of the earth land surface. These lands are often too cold, too hot, too rough, too hilly, too rocky, too salty, too droughty, too something to really be effective of raising either grain crops or vegetable crops. Often these lands are perfect for raising perennial grasslands uh, that stabilize the soil, cover the soil with a permanent cover for protection, also will mitigate greenhouse gases locally and worldwide. Greenhouse gases are primarily carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. Over the past 200 years, USDA has suggested that the greenhouse gases from CO2 has increased about 30%. Rangelands and grasslands can use that CO2 for the process of photosynthesis, but not all plant species in the range or grassland respond the same to these increases in CO2. Invasive shrubs are known to respond with higher CO2 concentration than perennial grasslands. Thus, we have some of these invasive shrubs increasing and causing an unbalance in productivity in our range and pasture lands. It's been estimated that the rangeland and grasslands could use up to 20% of the CO2 emissions, while nitrous oxides are usually not a major problem in these perennial grassland systems. Now, methane is a little bit different story. Methane is generated from almost all agricultural and human activities. Rice paddies is reportedly one of the highest methane producers in the world. I want to give you a couple of examples of uh, information that has been published. In 1999, there was a paper in the Journal of Animal Science, and this was a cooperative project from scientists in Australia and the U.S., and they compared greenhouse gases and methane production from grazing animals 
versus feedlot animals. They found that the emissions from the feedlot group were lower than those from the pasture group. And that kind of makes sense, but maybe not. So I was I was thinking, let's look at this a little bit deeperly. So I looked and read their paper carefully, and they really did not make a very fair comparison. Their pastures were mainly composed of grassy annual weeds with some perennial wolfy type grasses. Neither one I would consider to be a very productive uh, grass pasture like we would have in the PNW. And both would be lower quality than what we would want to be having our beef cattle operations be feeding their animals. So in a recent paper, in the August 2020 uh, Applied Animal Science Journal, that they also were looking at methane, and they found that methane could be reduced by ruminants, or beef cattle, by providing a higher quality pasture. And uh, we've learned this because the animals are, and we'll talk more about this, the animals are actually grazing and getting high quality, high nutrition, and high intake Uh, And we'll talk more about that in the near future. Um, So as we learn more and more about proper grazing, pasture health, soil health, and long-term pasture sustainability, livestock folks can reduce greenhouse gas emissions both locally and worldwide. After all, what is good for the land and the environment is also good for the producer. So how does grazing management factor into these different types of land? Well, proper grazing is really a management key to what we're going to achieve in our pasture livestock operations. Two quick definitions here. Stocking rate is simply the number of or weight of the animals per unit land area within a given time period. Carrying capacity or stock density is the total amount of forage available for, for grazing. And there really isn't a... Um, time element on carrying capacity. Animal unit months, or AUMs, is is the land area over the grazing season where the amount of forage that is available for the animal, cow, and calf on a per-month basis. Now, some lands should not be grazed, but converted as hay for winter forage, as a way to extend our feeding season. And then also uh, these represent a component of our total ranch carrying capacity. So we have pasture lands and we have hay land, or in some cases, silage land that are all part of the carrying capacity of that ranch. Now, grazing pressure, we often will talk about this, but it really is the number of animals per mass of forage that is produced. It's not on a land unit basis. Now, it's on the amount of forage that's out there. And as a more direct expression of the relationship of the animal to the forage supply. There are four key components to grazing that uh, most livestock producers should really be aware of. And I think most of them really are, but they often don't usually use it in their operations. And what we are looking at here is the the old concept of take half, leave half. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that concept, folks. 
And uh, you're thinking about the take half component with your animals. I'm thinking about the leave half component that's left over. And that leftover or that half that's still there, we're going to refer to that as the stubble. And it's really, really important. And so that stubble represents sugar and uh, protein. But that sugar that's left in that stubble is highly important for the, for the plant to be able to regenerate itself, survive over winter, survive drought periods, survive uh, grazing and regrowth. So all those are really important on what that stubble will do. Now, there are four really major components that I want to talk to you about today in this. The first one is, as the plant height increase in the pasture, there will be more available forage for, for each bite that the animal takes. It seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? But it, it's something that we have to keep in mind. So conversely, as the pasture gets shorter and shorter, there's less every time that animal is going to take a bite. And so that's a, that becomes part of our problem. The second one is that animals have more to consume in a pasture than they will spend less time having to find the food out there. So they're going to take fewer bites in a minute. Okay, so now we were talking about how long does it take them to do this? Now, that leads us into the third key component, which is animal grazing on pastures multiple hours per day. The shorter the pasture, the longer it takes for them to consume the amount of dry matter that they need on a daily basis. The shorter the pasture, the more time they're searching for food, the less time they have to rest, the less time they have to ruminate, and uh, they're spending most of their head time with their heads looking down at the ground trying to find that next bite. And uh, what we'd really like is for the animals to be up upright, looking around and observing what's going on and moving from area to area, finding the better quality forage. Finally, the fourth key point is that grazing dry matter should remain similar over the animal on a per day basis, but when pastures are short, but then there will be less for them to consume. And so they'll actually have a reduction in dry matter intake. And so this, this now is affecting animal health and uh, animal well-being by not having enough to consume out there. So they're spending a lot of time eating uh, and trying to consume when the pasture can't really uh, produce it. So when this occurs, then what I oftentimes refer to is overgrazing uh, will occur. Overgrazing is not any positive thing for the animals, uh, the plants, the, the soil. Everybody loses in an overgrazing scenario. And it's very stressful on especially the plants, the animals, and the soils, and within the environment that uh, everybody is existing in. Uh, there's simply no advantages to overgrazing. Um, this also creates a great opportunity for weeds to invade our pastures. Some weeds can be poisonous. Some are simply obnoxious. Uh, and so 
animals may graze them and not die from the poisonous plant, uh, but oftentimes there isn't a lot of dry matter with those weeds as compared to the pasture grasses and legumes that we're trying to grow. Uh, Oftentimes, believe it or not, weeds can be pretty nutritious, but they just simply don't have a lot of dry matter compared to a really healthy perennial pasture. So, Finally, the keys uh, to remember is to keep monitoring your grazing animals and your pastures so they're both doing well. Uh, Remember that this is a moving target. Things change on a daily basis. And we talk about the, the cycle of an animal, like breeding, calving, selling. We have this cycle. And we have also a very similar kind of cycle in the life of a grass. In the PNWR, grass life really starts in September. That's when we have our first generation of apical matter stems, which are those growing points near the crown in the crown area. And that's also when our roots are established. And so uh, overgrazing is, uh, and livestock are, don't have to be in the same uh, sentence. It really can be very separate. And if we manage our pastures, uh, we manage our livestock, uh, we all actually do a much better job in the end, both economically as well as um, producing the livestock products that that we need as a human population. I think that we can agree that overgrazing is overall bad for the producer, future production, and the environment. Can you touch on some options for livestock producers to help them avoid overgrazing and sustain their land long-term? Yes, we actually have several really good and not very costly options to help uh, avoid the overgrazing. Traditionally, our PNW has really hot, dry summers. Uh, Even when we have irrigated pastures, we still have hot, dry summers. We just have the opportunity to put water on that, but maybe not every year. As we know, we have drought periods uh, every once in a while. So one of the options that I often will ask producers to consider is a sacrifice area. This is an area that is not meant for grazing. This is a sacrifice area that is meant to hold the animals there for a period of time to avoid overgrazing on those productive pastures that we've been talking about. Uh, This is a temporary area. Uh, It can be used for regrowth uh, during the summertime when when we're wanting the grass to regrow. So we'll have regrazing in the fall. It can be a place where we would feed our livestock during the wintertime. Sacrifice areas can be used at any time. And uh, we're designating a piece of land for this area, but it's at uh, the sacrifice of saving all of our highly productive pasture lands. If pastures are no longer producing daily dry matter, then we have to ask ourselves, what are the other options that we have to do? First thing I want to know is, okay, take a soil test. Send it to a commercial laboratory. Get yourself a really good, complete soil analysis. And either I, your extension 
person or others will be glad to help you understand what do these numbers mean. They're really critically important because if there's some deficiencies in the soil test results, then that gives us an opportunity to fix those problems. And uh, some of our soils are over time, have become very acidic, even though they were very alkaline or high pH to begin with, with nitrogen fertilizer, with irrigation, with use, they have become more and more acidic. And so we may need to actually align some of our pasture lands. Um, Phosphorus and potassium are key elements that are used to grow the root system and also the internal mechanisms uh, within the plant respectively. So uh, those are key elements. We often think about just nitrogen, but growing pastures is often much more than just nitrogen. Now, one quick thing to note is that nitrogen and sulfur in our region now should usually be considered about the same at the same time. The reason I say that is because we're seeing more and more sulfur deficiency symptoms in our pastures than we have ever seen in the last 30 years. A ratio that I would like to think, have you think about is 10 to 1. For in your soil or in your plant, we should be thinking about 10 units of nitrogen to 1 unit of sulfur. And when we don't have enough sulfur, we are out of balance and the plants won't grow very well. And we are getting more and more sulfur deficiency symptoms. Now, another option that we have is planting alternative forages. And whether we have irrigation water or not, uh, we can grow a a short season crop like, say, sedan grass. Um, Plant that in, say, mid to late May. And we can get several really good cuttings of sedan grass hay, or we could pasture sedan grass throughout the summertime when our perennial cool season grass pastures are going into a dormant period, or they're simply resting and recovering from the from the grazing that we did during the spring flush. Another component is planting for hay. Hay is critical often for the winter period, it's okay. I tell folks it's okay to to utilize hay during the summertime if our pastures are not really being that productive. And all of our grass pastures will likely go through a uh, root shedding and low slow period during the summertime. And so being able to supplement those animals to maintain high productivity and high um, animal health will really help out the rancher uh, as well as the pasture. Another thing is uh, make sure that the carrying capacity of your ranch meets or exceeds the AM requirements that the animals that you have there uh, need. Uh, This will avoid over over, uh, use, over grazing, and other problems that might come up. Choosing the correct grazing system that works for your ranch uh, really is important to determine how much daily dry matter is available for your grazing uh, animals. Uh, Then you can supplement that with other various feedstuffs, such as the sedan grass in the summer or um, other hay uh, products that you're going to have during the year. Uh, But 
it's it's a combination of integrating the soil, the plants, the animals, and the environment into one manageable operation. And that's what ranchers do every single day. It's not easy. It's very complicated. And I really applaud the ranchers who do this successfully. And um, I, I believe that there is still a very great future for the ranching industry in the PNW. Thank you, Steve. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. You can find our references to journal articles in the show notes below. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for listening to the Cougs Talk Stock podcast, brought to you by Washington State University Extension. You can review, rate, and subscribe on iTunes or anywhere you listen. Find us online at soundcloud.com forward slash Cougs Talk Stock, where the additional resources from our podcasts are linked. Let us know if you have any burning questions or suggestions at CougsTalkStock at wsu.edu. This podcast is brought to you by Hannah Browse, Sarah Drager, Dr. Don Llewellyn, and Natasha Moffat-Hemmer, and is produced by Connors Communications at Washington State University. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.